0: Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we'll take a moment to reflect together on God's word. I'd like to take a quick survey this morning. Just be one question. And I'm going to ask you to raise your hands to the answer to the question. Okay? so you ready? I want you to uh, think about what your emotional reaction is to a particular word. And you'll have a uh, sort of a picture that comes to mind, but you also have sort of an emotional reaction. So if I say the word ice cream, you know. You have probably a picture and an emotional reaction. And if you're like me, you have cookies and cream in mind or Rocky Road in mind. But coupled with that is a very positive emotional reaction. So I want you to think just for a moment without raising your hands. What's your emotional reaction, whether it's positive or negative, to the word authority? When you hear me say or you hear someone say the word authority, whatever you, comes to your mind sort of visually, do you have a more of a negative reaction or more of a positive reaction? All right, who has more of a negative reaction when you hear that word? You don't have a good feeling about it, quite a few. How about a positive reaction? I, f- I feel good about a lot less positive reactions. Why would you have a negative reaction to that? Why would you hear the word authority and have sort of a negative emotional attachment? Maybe it's sort of in our societies or our country's DNA. When we decided that we wanted to exist as a country, we made a particular declaration. What was that? It was a declaration of independence. In other words, I do not like the current authority structure. So I would like to rewrite that in some way. And maybe that's sort of just in the uh, American DNA. Some of you have heard me tell a story about John Guest, a gentleman who's spoken here before from this pulpit. He was born in England. He came to America in the 60s to be an evangelist. And when he arrived, he took a particular interest, as you might imagine, in sort of the Revolutionary War. And so as he looked around, he was in Pennsylvania, as he looked around at antique shops, he would come around and he would see the placards that you might imagine. Uh, Don't tread on me. Uh, No taxation without representation. And he came across this one placard that says, we serve no sovereign here. We serve no sovereign here. And this is what he wondered to himself. How do I come to a people proclaiming the kingdom of God when they have a built-in allergy in their culture to sovereignty? See, I'm coming as an evangelist and I'm trying to say, I'm going to tell you something about the kingdom of God. And that there is an authority structure. There isn't a, a, a sovereign. But in the DNA of the culture is we serve no sovereign here. So that was his question, and I would say that we can go back before the Revolutionary War to understand where autonomy and self-sovereignty came from. You can go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see the story of its beginning. but We don't have time for that today, but uh, I do want to talk about this morning God's design for Christians and especially those who are in the church, that it has an authority. It has an authoritative structure. And because it's God's design, we should be excited about it. We should relish it. We should say, yes, this is what he's designed for his people. And whether we sort of have this positive, never, negative reaction culturally to that, we should say, yes, if this is God's design, it's a good thing. He's designed something good for us and for uh, his church. So we know from verses like 1 Corinthians 6:19 you are not your own you were bought at a price or Galatians 2:20 for I have been crucified with Christ it's no longer I who live it's Christ who lives in me. We, we could pick out those kinds of verses all over the Bible and understand that we live in some sort of authority structure, that, that God has moved into our lives in a way that's caused us to to be his servant, to, to be his son or daughter, to say, I'm, I'm following after somebody, and you're the uh, supreme authority. And when we look at Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Paul provides a picture of, Of that authority. If you look with me in chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says this: And God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. And so Paul is he started in verse 15, 16 with his prayer and he's praying for this particular church in Ephesus, this church plant that he planted and say, I'm hoping that you understand some of these particular truths. And one of the truths that I want you to understand is that Christ is the head. He has the authority. And so my question then is, is what does it mean that Christ is the head? So Christ is the head, so, so what does that mean? And I think there's two different ways that Paul wants to talk about that, and that is distance and intimacy. Let me show you how I got to that conclusion. Verse 21, distance. Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. See, Jesus is the supreme authority. He's not just above everything. He's not, you know, there's a big list and there's 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and then Jesus just squeaks over the bar to number one. No, He's far above all things. Jesus doesn't have any competitors. He knows no comparisons. He, he's not one of many. He's not one of a few. He, he doesn't share the stage. He doesn't need help. He doesn't wear out. He never loses relevance. Whether it's in this age or any age uh, to come, Jesus is the name which is above every name, and he is above all earthly powers. That's what Paul wants to rivet into the minds of his church members to say he is above all things. There is no particular competition in this area. And I'm wondering why Paul, right at the beginning of this letter, would want to emphasize this to this particular church. Why would he just right out of the gate say, "Guys, if there's just one thing we can make sure we understand together before we move on, is that Jesus is the supreme authority"? And I think it comes from the context. And the city of Ephesus hosted one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. So one of the great one of the ancient wonders of the of one of the great wonders of the ancient world was like the pyramids. So the, the people look in history look back and say, these are wonders in ancient time. How did they happen? They're amazing. And Ephesus as a city hosted one of those, and it was the temple of Artemis. This sort of female godlike figure. And it sat at the top of the city. And you could see it as you came into the city. It was a port city on the, on the east coast and from the west coast, or the west coast and from the east, you could see it. This great temple that stood in a way that would outshone anything that, that, that society knew. And as you came into that, you realized there was all kinds of idolatry set up around the city that you began to worship and buy these little idols. There was all kinds of superstition. And then when the sun came down over the city, prostitutes like ants out of a hill came down and descended on the city for sexual and spiritual relations. That's the kind of city that Paul planted his church in. Just probably a little house church. And imagine the darkness the the spiritual darkness that would have just sort of cascaded over that city and how incredible it would have looked compared to this little house church. And Paul's trying to come in and infuse these new believers to say, there is a power, there is an authority that is above every authority. And so when they looked up and they saw the temple they said, "No, there's something higher than this. There's something more powerful than this." So so when I go out into my culture and there seems to always been this sort of this creeping darkness When I I go into the, the college arena and I sort of feel like I'm the stupid backwards person for believing in Jesus, you need to know there is an authority that is above every authority. There is a name that is above every name. And every person will bow to his name one day. You have to be rock solid, sure about that truth. And that you gladly relievingly don't have to be sovereign, because you serve a sovereign here. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to figure out everything. You don't have to have the power to change everything. You serve a sovereign, and he is making all things work together for good. And he is above every political system, every structure, every religion. And Paul's wanting to make sure you understand that. I, I, Paul, your pastor, am trying to help you understand that as well. So there's a distance that Paul wants to help us to understand but I think there's also an intimacy. Jesus is the head of a body. He's intimately connected. He's not just somewhere way out there circling above. He, he's also connected to his people like a head is to the body. He's, he may be far above, but he's not far removed from your situation. And so we know that if we look, if we just keep keep reading through Ephesians, you you know the passage, Ephesians 5. Uh, Christ is the head of the man and the man is the head of the body. And then Paul goes on to describe this intimacy that's supposed to be happening between a man and a woman. And that's supposed to be a little picture of what the church has with Christ, that he's intimately connected. He knows his people. He knows them by name. He knows what's going on. In their lives. And so we can say, at least from looking at Ephesians chapter 1, that, that we serve an authority. We serve a sovereign. He is both far above all things, but he's intimately connected to what's happening in your life, in the life of the church. He's not that distant. Second thing that we see let's look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. Then my question moved from just understanding that Christ is the authority is to, well, did he leave us any other structure of authority in the church? He is the supreme authority. We can say that for certain. But now in this church, is there any, any authority in the church? And the way I thought about it, asking is, is, church, is Christ the head of a body or is Christ the head of a blob? I mean, if you're head of a body, the body itself has some structure. It has a spine and has arms and has legs. Or is Christ just the head of the blob? He's it's just the, every Christian is just sort of in this big blob and there's no particular structure underneath. It's just Christ on top and sort of a big blob underneath. And I would say we can say for sure, maybe because it just makes us feel better that we're not a blob, we're a body, that there is some internal structure in the church. Jesus has definitely passed on some authority and structure from his church. And let's look at chapter 16. And you remember this passage. Jesus uh, is with his disciples, and Peter makes this great confession, which is in verse 16 of chapter 16. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he says down in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we can clearly see there's some some kind of transfer. Peter has made this great confession. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus turns to Peter and I believe to the rest of the apostles And says, that's right, and I'm handing some keys. And in the Bible, keys open and close things. They represent some authority. These people are now going to have the authority to open things and close things. So there's an authority that's being handed off. It's important for us to see. Really, no matter how you would think about this verse, and there's some controversy We can definitely see there's some authority that's being transferred. And I think in the context here, we can definitely say the authority is being transferred to proclaim the gospel. See, I've been proclaiming it. Jesus has been been proclaiming it. And he's handing off these keys and he's saying, guys, you're going to be the ones that spread out across the whole world. And you're going to be saying things like, Jesus is the son of God. He's the Messiah, He's the way, He's the truth, He's the light. I want you to go to every dark corner of the planet and open the doors to the kingdom of God. And the gate of hell will not prevail against your effort. They're being given these keys that really are the gospel and opening the doors to an individual life or maybe to a whole country or city. And so we know that authority is being passed down and you see it in all the way through the book of Acts. But I don't think it's just authority for this external proclamation. I think it's also authority for internal discipline. You don't need to turn there, but just two chapters later in Matthew chapter 18, there's this uh, passage that we'll talk about in a few weeks that's talking about church discipline. And you, you, many of you remember it. If you have a problem with your brother, what do you do? You go one-on-one. Second thing, if you can't get resolved, then you go one on two or three. If you can't get resolved there, then you go one to the church. And the church, I think, doesn't mean the church universal. It means to the leadership of the church. And you tell it to the church, and you try to get the church involved and behind and trying to move this uh, conflict forward in some positive way. And then Jesus says this, Uh, I tell you the truth, whatever you, he's looking at the apostles here, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So I think he's not saying you're just giving keys to proclaim the gospel, to open up the church. You're also proclaiming things that have to do with church discipline, things that are going to happen in a given church. You're going to have the authority to open things and close things to say, yes, we are going to go in that direction or no, we're not going to go in that direction. Because there's this binding and loosening, this opening and closing and a very comforting statement, often taken out of context. Jesus says um, at the end of that passage. And wherever two or three are gathered together, what does he say? And there I'm going to be with them. When elders who have authority get together and they appropriately, underneath the word of God, open and close things, I'm there. I'm for that. It's not just when every two or three Christians get together. That's how you hear it a lot of times. You are just get a little prayer session. Oh, Lord, we know wherever two or three get together, you're here with them. Well, he is. I don't want to say he's not. Sorry, you don't have a church discipline case and an elder here, so I'm not here with you. I mean, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying in the context, I've given some authority and I'm with these. I'm, I'm giving authority to these people to open and close things. So I think it's uh, obvious that there's. Christ is the head of a body, and he's handing off some authority to his apostles. And I'm trying to, I'm just building a case here for how we get to where we are at Christ Community Church. I think it's fairly obvious that the authority given to the apostles gets passed down to the elders of a local church. Let me read a few passages. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. So whoever the leaders are, whatever name you might give them, they have some authority. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the church needs to get underneath that and to go in their direction. Paul's talking to Titus, who's a missionary in this island in um, the Aegean Sea. It's part of uh, Greece. It's called Crete. And he says, the reason I left you in Crete was to appoint elders in every town. And they must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught to encourage others by sound doctrine and to refute those who oppose it. To encourage sound doctrine, to refute. You might say to open, to close. I'm giving authority to you, Titus, to hand to these elders. And these elders have to be understand the word because they're going to be proclaiming the gospel to this little island. But then when people come in and they have some sort of opposing view, you've got to close that down to say, no, somebody has to stand up in authority and say, no, that's not true. Or, no, that's not the way to go. And that's given to these elders. Finally, in Acts chapter 20. Paul comes back to Ephesus, and he's saying his last words to the elders that are left there, this city that's dominated by this temple to Artemis. And he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you elders. I know that after you leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. So be on guard. Be on guard. What does a guard do? Opens and closes. You have this authority to these people. You're going to be opening and closing things. And so this authority now is given to the elders. Now let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We, not, we know not only from this particular passage, but in Acts chapter 6, that there was a now another division of authority. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say authority, division of responsibility in the church. In Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter gives this great sermon. The sermon every pastor wants to give, that at the end of the delivery, 3,000 people come forward. I'm waiting for my chance. I know providentially it's in my future. But you give this This uh, this platform to Peter, he stands up. It's just a tremendous moment in church history and 3000 people come in. And you just imagine 3000 people coming into the church at one moment. I mean, imagine the the situations you'd have to deal with. Well, one of the situations they had to deal with was a lot of poor people were coming into the church. And there was two specific groups, widows, Jewish widows and Greek widows. And they there's some sort of distribution of food. And it wasn't going either equitably or it wasn't going well. It just was going wrong in some way. And poor widows aren't getting food. It's going to create some noise. should create some noise. I'm not saying that in a negative way. And the noise sort of rises up to the, to the apostles. And they say, uh, we, we can't neglect the preaching of the word and prayer for waiting tables. So do you see they start creating this separation is we've been given a certain authority. We've been given this these keys to open and close things. And when we open and people come into the kingdom, there's going to be all kinds of physical needs that are all very important to the lives of the people. But we can't we can't go and do that. We've got to have another group of people who go and do that. And those people are called deacons. They're servants. They're table waiters. So when we had the deacons up here maybe a month ago, these are the people that, you know, come up like the maitre d'. They have the towel, you know, over their arm, and they're coming up to beside the church to say, how can I serve you? What, what are the physical needs you have as a person, as a congregation? And, and how can I serve those needs? And how can I help these elders who have this church-wide authority, allow them to do the preaching and teaching and prayer so I take care of these physical needs? And so we get to that particular structure in 1 Timothy 3. And you can see it easily if you have headings on your Bible texts. First, in chapter 3, there's qualifications for Overseers that's another word for elders and then in the just above verse eight in most Bibles you'll see qualifications for deacons. Now we could um, do a whole series on these character traits and they're all worthwhile. I don't think this is meant to be a complete list. I think this is meant to be a list of the kinds of person people that you're working on, but let me just read a few of them. I'll just just talk about the ones from the elders. Uh, They must be above reproach. Husband of one wife, probably meaning not if you've been married and divorced as much as it means you can't have two wives. Bigger problem back then. Uh, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. One of the things about when you read through the list is the list is admirable, but it's not remarkable. I mean, they're all all admirable traits, but they're not like remarkable traits. You notice that? You shouldn't be a drunkard, you shouldn't be violent, you shouldn't be quarrelsome. It's not like you'd say, well, those are the super-Christian guys, and they're going to be elders, but the rest of us can be drunkards and violence and quarrelsome. That's okay. That's certainly not a great congregation to lead. No, you, know, you would say... This is what most every Christian should be striving for. This should be the mark of most Christians, especially in a church that's creating a discipleship culture. As you begin to follow after Christ, some of these things that maybe represent you, they begin to fall off. And you, you begin to say, there should be people like this, qualified people in every church, if they're really following after Christ. It's not the super Christians step up to the plate to be an elder or to be a deacon. This should be representative of many of the Christians in the body of Christ at any given church. Second thing I want to mention here, and we can just mention one from each. So let me pick one out from elders and one out from deacons. I would say when we look at this, this list, one thing that you see is that elders should be willing to fight, but should not be Fighters. Elders should be men who are willing to fight, but not fighters. Why, why do I say that? Titus, encourage sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Acts chapter 20, be on guard against fierce wolves. Well, if you're going to have to be on guard against fierce wolves, and you're going to have to refute things, you're going to have to learn how to fight. You're going to have to be willing to fight, not, you know, the, the right hook, left hook kind of thing, but the fight for truth. And one of the things that concerns me just about our particular culture is the the growing sort of passivity of men. Their willingness to sit back and either let somebody else do it or hope that somehow this conflict or issue is going to get taken care of when they don't get taken care of that way. They get taken care of when somebody who has courage but not quarrelsome can step into an arena and say, we're going to say what's true here. And so we have to have men who can step in and be willing to to fight for truth and to fight for the health and the safety of the congregation. This doesn't happen very often, but it has happened here. And probably will over the course of the next five years in different ways. But somebody came to the church that I thought was a threat. Especially to young women. And so a few of us who are in leadership position got together and said, you know, you can't come back. We will try to be helpful to you. We'll try to give you counseling. We'll do all the things that we can. And maybe something could happen. But right now, you're you're a threat. And we can't have you come in. Now, that's a tough decision, but somebody has to stand up and say that. And somebody's given some, been given some authority to do that in the church. And so some men have to be the people who take care of those kinds of issues. So they need to be um, willing to fight, but not fighters, I said. Verse 3, they're supposed to be uh, not violent, not quarrelsome. Paul's saying, even if a man is able to teach, but he's quarrelsome, you don't want him as an elder if he stirs up conflict. So you can have some other good qualifications, and you might sort of be caught off guard because they have one or two or three or four of these kinds of things. But I don't think it's by mistake that Paul says in these, this verse back to back, not violent, not quarrelsome. We don't want somebody who's constantly stirring up conflict, constantly getting into these sort of verbal arguments. That's not the kind of character trait you need at the leadership level. I talked to a man several years ago. He said, I just love getting in arguments. That's OK. I mean, that's it didn't bother me. I didn't lose any sleep. But I thought, you wouldn't make a good elder. I mean, you know, (laughs) you know, just some people, they're just like that. They just like to mix it up. And I'm not trying to say that's bad. I'm just saying, if you're the person that's always sort of stirring it up with your your verbal weapons, okay, maybe there's some maturity issues there. I don't know. But it's not a good character trait if you're going to be an elder. That's not the kind of person. That we would be looking for. So we have to have this person who's not passive. I want you to hear me say that. But not quarrelsome. There's a tension. There's a maturity. I think this is why typically their elders are older people. Because it can be easy for a young man to fall off these sides. And you want somebody who's had some experience to know how to navigate these two points. Number two, deacons. Let me just mention one thing. Notice in verse 8. It says deacons should be dignified and not double-tongued. And I think specifically this verse is talking about men. And then in verse 11, whether it's wives or women, and I think it's women, either way, the list begins with dignified, not slanderers. So dignified, not double-tongued, dignified, not slanderers. In other words, you, if you're going to be a deacon, you have to be honorable and honest. And there seems to be a special warning here in both cases, whether it's men or women, that you have to be an honorable person and you have to be very careful about your tongue, whether you're double-tongued or Slanderous. you have to be very careful. And I just begin to think, why would why would those two character traits seem to be so critical for deacons? And and again I thought back to Acts chapter six when you have all these women coming forward who are all widows. Wow, what a vulnerable moment. I'm I'm hungry. I would do anything for food. The person I love is Left me for whatever reason. I can't support myself. When you get women who are in that kind of position, you have to have somebody honorable dealing with them. You have to have somebody who's who's going to watch their tongue. It's not going to say, well, I promise you, Mrs. Smith, that we're going to do this. But then you go back and, and you don't do it. You can't have that kind of person at that place. You can't. Be serving the poor. Then when you go back to your crowd, slander the people that you're trying to serve. Say, oh, those people. So you have to be very careful if you're going to be a deacon because you're going to be dealing with very vulnerable situations. And you want to have the the highest honor. And you want to be very careful about what you say. Well, gosh, it would make a great sermon series to talk about all these character traits. Let me close with one more that's meant for every Christian, but especially for every Christian leader. And that is, um, and you don't need to turn to it, John chapter 13, Jesus in the upper room. I mean, in the event that a, a Christian loses sight of what it means to exercise authority in the kingdom of God, in the event that the leader gets confused With worldly leadership versus godly leadership, you can always turn to John 13 to give yourself some help. I want you to listen to this verse 3. Jesus is in the upper room, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into Jesus' hands. Jesus is sitting in the upper room, it's hours before his betrayal. He already knows what's happening with Judas. And there's some kind of transfer here. This is this would take more time than I have to talk about. But there's some kind of transfer that now Jesus knows all authority rests in him. Now, if you're sitting at that table, what might you do with that kind of authority? When that transfer is taking place unseen, an argument, a seen argument breaks out. Just imagine this. You're sitting there. and Again, we can't explain it. But Jesus is sitting there and he knows God the Father has said, All authority, son. You have it all. And this divine transfer or transaction is taking place. It's unseen, but what is seen is the disciples break out in an argument. And you know what the argument's about? Who's going to be the greatest? (laughs) Imagine how far away the disciples were from reality at that moment. I mean, who's going to be the greatest? You're sitting in front of God Almighty, who all power rests in, and you're thinking about who's going to be the greatest. Now, what would I do with all authority at that moment? Oh, you wouldn't want to know. But what does Jesus do? In case any Christian leader gets in any authoritative position and gets confused about what that authority means, Jesus lays aside that garment of all authority. And what does he put on? A towel. And he washes the feet. Of these people who are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And he says, guys, see now that you've seen me do this, you, you go do the same. When I talk about handing over keys, when I talk about giving authority to somebody, when I talk about you being a leader, this is what I'm talking about right here. You're not supposed to press down on people, you're supposed to bend down and get people. See, it's a totally different view outside the church than inside the church. That's the authority that Jesus has, God has given. All authority is given to Jesus. And we gladly say, we serve a sovereign here. I do not have to be sovereign But then he said, yeah, and I'm giving this church, this body, some structure. And the way the Bible designs it is the elders have this authority. And we're going to talk about this as as the series goes on. And the deacons have this service responsibility. And instead of having a negative reaction, my hope is that you can say, that's how God designed it. So it must be good. And I can lean in to being underneath the authority of an elder and not be suspicious.